If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hi, I'm Bill Allred, and welcome to the Let's Go Eat Show. And I think you're going to like this week's episode a lot. Uh, Amy Donaldson, of course, is uh, on our uh, regular radio show, the Radio from Hell show, every Monday morning to do uh, talk about sports and and sports philosophy and life philosophy in general. Um, and uh, so we scheduled her for an episode of the Let's Go Eat show, and she showed up with her own food, I might add, and her father was with her, uh, visiting from Alaska, where Amy grew up, and uh, her father, Dan Donaldson. Uh, he didn't say much in the uh, interview in the Let's Go Eat Show podcast, but he was certainly referenced quite a bit, and uh, seemed to be, well, he seemed to be a wonderful guy, really, you know, for a, a guy who loves guns. Not just, just kind of a joke. Uh, Amy Donaldson, uh, wife to uh, an extraordinary attorney, Edward K. Brass, and she is a great writer. She really is. She writes about sports. She used to write about crime, and now there's so much crime in sports, it's a natural fit. <laughs> but um, she is a, a remarkable person, and I had no idea the depth that she had, because we don't really interact only for those few moments every Monday morning. But this was a detailed in-depth conversation with Amy, and she is terrific. Uh, she thinks about things, she thinks about them very carefully and very deeply, uh, and in this interview she'll talk about also how she became a sports writer, uh, how she became a newspaper writer, and a, and a, uh, uh, and a sports broadcaster. So, uh, let's get to it. It's, uh, I think, one of the more interesting interviews I've ever done, really. It's a uh, Deseret News sports writer and columnist Amy Donaldson on the Let's Go Eat Show. Okay, we're rolling, we're going. Um, so, uh, Amy Donaldson, guest on the Let's Go Eat Show. Now, Amy, Amy Donaldson, of course, fine sports writer for the uh, Deseret News, mm -hmm. uh, columnist, and also podcast co-host. Yes. And we'll talk about all of that. Uh, and but you've taken us literally and have brought <laughs> a sandwich. Yes. Now, and my dad eating his breakfast. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so and you brought your dad, who's uh, from uh, Alaska. Yes. And mm -hmm. um, uh, his name is Dan Donaldson. Hi, Dan. Yeah. Uh, Dan is not going to talk on the podcast. No. Yeah. Not, not unless if, we need him to. If uh, Dan, if you, if you feel like yelling things out, please do. Okay. We I told him we'd look for him occasionally, maybe for a thumbs up or thumbs down yeah. Yeah. when if she's I'm lying. lying. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dan, uh, uh, let me ask you. <laughs> <laughs> Shove um, that piece of toast in your mouth and then answer the question. Did you drive down here? 
Yeah? No. No? no. Sure. Okay. That's a long drive, isn't it? Yeah, they flew. I have never been to Alaska. You haven't? No. You got to go? They got you, extra rooms? You grew up yes. in Alaska. In Anchorage. Mm-hmm. Anchorage, Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was that like? I mean... Was it, did you, you did you like as, it there? You love it there? You um, as a kid, I loved it. I didn't notice the extra darkness, or because I was in school and mm-hmm. I played sports. And for me, it was just uh, it. You know, it seemed Anchorage is a big enough city. I didn't I didn't miss out on anything. It, and is it a big city? I mean, how to compare six it high to, schools? Compare it to how, uh, Salt Lake. You know, it looks a lot like Salt Lake actually. Really? Mm-hmm. So I lived here until I was twelve, and then we moved up there. But I, um, you know, it looks a lot like Salt Lake. There's uh, mountains on one side of you and an ocean on the other side versus Salt Lake Valley is two sets of mountains. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it, it was a lot like it. And now, I'm suspecting that uh, your father, Dan, right? Mm-hmm. Did I get it? Yeah, yeah, Dan. Dan, so you moved to uh, Anchorage with Dan when you were 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, my guess is you were running from the law. Was that yeah, it was <laughs> close. Closer. Close, yeah. Uh, I mean, people move to, a, uh, move to Alaska <laughs> for kind of these... Weird reason sometimes. Well, for us, it was uh, the 80s uh, under uh, the economic bust, mm-hmm. uh, the construction. My dad was in construction at the time. So he went up to Alaska to build some condominiums and found it to be, uh, you know, tons of work. And so he said to my mom, hey, pack stuff up and come up here. And uh, we thought what everyone else thought was, oh, we're going to live in an igloo and uh, <laughs> hopefully uh, we'll see TV someday mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we were not happy about it, I will say. The, my sister and I, that were the oldest. How the old other, you were 12, right? Yeah, yeah. my so sister. You had friends. And, yeah, we had friends. Yeah. Uh, and we had moved quite a bit. You know, every, every couple of years, we had basically every two years, we moved. For following construction, basically? Yeah, and my dad was always building us a new house that we had to move into, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which was cool because yeah. it was custom designed for us, yeah. right? So they were. Mm-hmm. Always like interesting, fascinating things, but but it, it's hard on a kid because you want to you know establish mm-hmm. yourself. And I loved where we lived at the time. We lived out in Draper area, and there was huge. It was out by Pepperwood, and there were horses, and huge gullies, and you know, I, mm-hmm. kids could f- pretend they lived in the woods, and I yeah. loved it. So, um, but yeah, so I was bummed out. But we moved to the woods uh, of Alaska. <laughs> How many siblings? Uh, I had four. There were four of kids at the time when we mm-hmm. moved. I have I have five siblings now. Mm-hmm. So uh, so you moved not into the city. But out in the out in the boonies somewhere around. It would be Anchorage. considered the suburbs of Anchorage, but it was um, in Anchorage. The main roads were paved, but almost all like the neighborhood streets were um, were were dirt. So mm-hmm. our road was dirt, but uh, the the road that you I mean maybe I don't thirty forty feet from our house was mm-hmm. paved. And then there's uh, so and you lived in a, a place that you're. Your dad built? Not that. Not at that point. At what? that point, we lived in the house that we just. I think we just rented, rented that one actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's when we first got there. And then, and it's interesting. Dan has stayed there. Yeah, he uh, won't come back. He's now he he changed professions. When I oh. was in high school, he switched. Uh, he decided. Oh, I think I'll take up being a police officer. So he became a, a state trooper, Alaska state trooper. Um, at 38, and um, that's pretty. Uh, that's that's interesting that they let you do it at 38. I mean, we I'm, still had to pass seriously. all the same tests. Yeah. and and mm-hmm. I and I actually I think it, him doing that changed my opinion on when you should become a police officer because I think your mm-hmm. view of the world is a lot more mature mm-hmm. at 38 than it is at 21 or 22. Mm-hmm. And have you finished? So, see, I, Dan's an interesting. I'm going to have to yeah. do a podcast actu- with Dan. He actually <laughs> is. He actually we had him on our podcast. Uh, yeah. yeah so, but he is an interesting guy. He's a, Marine, he's here. He's staying with me one more day. My mom left to go to my sister's. We're going to join them tomorrow, but we're going to a, the Sutherland Institute is having a veterans gala tonight, and I'm taking my dad. So, are you welcome at the Sutherland I, Institute? I am. They love okay. me. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
they don't know you then. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Not yet. They're going to meet me tonight. Amy, you brought a sandwich. Yes. A pl- uh, what is it, by the way? It's eggplant, grilled eggplant. Um, okay. And peppers. Now, I, you, you should peppers. eat some of the sandwich. Oh, I will. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just don't yeah. don't be afraid to eat while we're talking. You know, I will not be All right. afraid. So, I'm not dainty. Don't. Uh, and I'm then shy. Dan. Now Dan retired. Yeah. Are you retired yeah. from being a cop? Afraid. And you're just yeah. All right. He's in his third retirement. Retired from uh, construction in and, when I was a I think it was my junior year of high school, uh, leading into the senior year. And then he retired from being a state trooper after I think 21 or 22 mm-hmm. years. Jeez. 22. And then he decided to go to work for the oil companies up there in security. A lot of the former mm. troopers oh, do yeah. that. And so he did that for, I don't know, another 20 years-ish? Yeah. Wow. So now we've convinced him that mm-hmm. he's got to retire. My mom's so, like, so I'm going to move. He's got two pensions, <laughs> yeah? Two, two, two pensions. And, yeah. Uh, and you'll just stay in Alaska, right? I'm listen. I'm gonna uh, if the if the offer really is open, maybe I should just go up there and see what An- what Anchorage is like and Alaska is like. They actually live in Soldotna now, and you would love it. Yeah. And uh, w- I have sent people to them before. They have hosted uh, a few of our my colleagues, mm-hmm. and um, my mom. They have a hot tub at their place. They're in. Um, they live on the Kenai Peninsula, which is where everybody goes to fish. Oh yeah, and salmon. So, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, in Soldotna is where Carl Malone actually had a cabin. Mm, yeah, uh, it's a beautiful. Kay. It's actually, I think it's more beautiful than the Anchorage area, um, but it's it's definitely what you think of when you think of Alaska. There's only one problem with all of this, and that what is, is I am deathly afraid of bears. I don't Whoa. care. I don't care for bears in the slightest. They're killing machines. They're nature's killing machines, and I don't like them. But if you go, if you do what uh, what we do, and when when I took Ed up there for the first time, we did a lot of chartered fishing mm-hmm. expeditions. You're fine. Mm-hmm. Now you wander out on your own. You could very well yeah, meet and, a bear. Yeah. And there was we saw a guy uh, who a bear had come upon him and his fish, and the guy didn't want to put his fish down. Mm-hmm. And somebody yelled at him, hey, dummy, it's you are the, the fish. Give the bear your fish. <laughs> and we saw him. They just were walking down one year on the Kenai. They were just everywhere. And yeah. we saw it. Um, and that's one of the things my mom has hated. She loves to be outside and walk and run, mm-hmm. jog. And, she, you know, there's always, oh, there's a bear warning. You have to stay inside or you can't <laughs> go on the, we have great bike trails up there, mm-hmm. bike paths. But if there is a bear warning. You can't, yeah. 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 Uh, and she mentioned, uh, Amy mentioned Ed, Ed uh, Brass. Uh, is Amy Donaldson's husband, for those of you who may not know, Ed Brass, uh, uh, defense lawyer extraordinaire. He is. Here in Salt Lake City. And he, you know and how, uh, I, I think I've told you this, and I know I told Ed, I told Ed this, and and he, you know, well, you'll, you'll know how he reacted. The first time I ever went over uh, to the courthouse with Ed, he was doing something for me about a car that a guy had taken yeah. from me. And finally it ended up we had to go to court. Mm-hmm. And so I met Ed over at the courthouse, and we're walking through the, the halls of the courthouse, and the crowds part. <laughs> <laughs> they, people or people come up and say, "Hey, Ed," and I mean, you can just mm-hmm. you can just see the respect that that uh, both prosecutors and defense attorneys have for him over there. I mean, it's it's yeah. astonishing. And I think I told him that, and his reaction was, you know. which it usually is he doesn't doesn't like he's not he doesn't like compliments he's Mm -hmm. he's like my dad in that way if you try to compliment him or say you know something kind he tries to brush it off (laughs) it's part of his mo he tries to they would joke with about him having a mean face uh you know so that nobody would bother him or Mm. he keeps people at arm's length Mm -hmm, for him mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. is that they think he's scary and intimidating when in fact he is absolutely the opposite yeah he's just well anyway Uh, we're not here to talk about your dad or ed brass we're here to talk about amy donaldson 
but although it's just isn't it just you are a remarkable you are remarkable in that you have managed to that you have these incredible men in your life as well. Absolutely. And I think, I think that's, that's one of the reasons I do talk about them. And I write about, uh, I've written about my dad probably more times than he wants me to write about him. <laughs> it was my mom's greatest fear that we would, I would end up like writing a book about them. <laughs> and you probably will. So. I probably will. No. Um, but, but uh, you know, they've had a huge and profound impact on me. And I love having a husband who you know, comes at things differently than I do and challenges me and, and vice versa. Mm. I think we both have caused each other to, to take a look at beliefs that we grew up with or things that we thought we knew or um, I find it to be the best way to live your life. And, and now your dad is staying at your house, right? He is indeed. So, and he gets along okay with, usually, with Ed? Usually, usually. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting for Ed. <laughs> so in my family, uh, it's very law enforcement um, having my sister as a police officer. Mm. Uh, and they kind of not have the tendency to like defense attorneys sometimes. Usually not. Yeah. I think my it was not my dad's like, he, my dad always thought I would become a prosecutor. So the fact that I married a defense lawyer was probably a huge disappointment. <laughs> you married who? His, his first disappointment was when in college I told him, I think I want to be a writer. And his first response to that, which was unintentionally rude, was, uh, who's going to pay you to write? <laughs> No, and I said, what "Don't he, worry, I'll find somebody." You didn't do the emphasis right, though. Yeah. You did it like, "Who's going to pay you to write?" Yeah, I think what he meant was, "Who's going to pay you to write?" Yeah, not no, just I you, but meant, who would pay anybody? Who's going to pay you? <laughs> okay. So, you, so your dad thought you, and did you think you were going to be a lawyer, a, pros- a prosecutor, or did you have, lean that way at some point? Um, I hated school. Let me just say, I have a dyslexia, and so school is a real struggle for me. And I basically went to school so that, that I could participate in sports, which I was not good at. I was a very <laughs> average athlete. My sister is very talented. I was very average. In fact, I forbid her from participating in the same sports that I did. She's the one that's the cop now? Yeah, she's a police officer. And um, because she was actually talented, and I didn't want to have to compete against her, because she was my little sister. We're 16 mm. months apart. But she is two grades behind me in school mm. um, because of when her birthday is. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it was. Uh, but uh, but it was fun. I well, loved being a part of teams. I loved competition. I what sport you played? What baseball? I played everything. No, I, I so I grew up. My very first sport was softball, and this guy introduced me to softball. Mm-hmm. Uh, he coached my bonnet ball team. He was he ran us the like, bonnet ball. Is that what the it was? bonnet ball that was in Utah? Mm. And uh, he was a drill sergeant, but he happened to hire, a, or not hire, but another girl's dad was the assistant coach, or was it somebody that worked for you? I can't mm. remember. Um, but he was a super nice guy. So mm-hmm. he was a soft guy. My dad was the hard guy. And uh, he coached us uh, one year, and then another guy coached us. And then my mom ended up coaching us the third year we played, my sister and I played. And that was our most successful year and when I made your the, mother co- when my mother coached us and I made the all-star team and my mom ended up coaching the all-star team mm. and she she still brings that up mm. <laughs> how much more six but it, in fairness to my dad I didn't I was terrified of the ball I didn't know anything about softball when I first started so. well you uh, you say that uh, you were not good at sports but you just played them all anyway and I assume when you mean all the you did tennis and uh, just everything. I, I did and softball and all the team sports. I did softball, basketball. Um, mm-hmm. When they when Title IX brought soccer to the high schools, mm-hmm. I played soccer for one year. I ran track. Uh, mm-hmm. I ran cross country because my sister begged me to because it they needed enough people to have a full team. Uh, my goal, her goal, was to win. My goal was to not be last because that was what I felt was winning. Now, now, you, now I just yeah. Yeah, yes or no, Dan, was was she a bad athlete or is she not as is she a good or bad or is she just middle of the road or you know, is she 
Was she better? Average, just a, an average athlete. Yes. You weren't horrible. Let me, let me say that my mother constantly told me it's okay to be. A-. My dad was pushing me to be better. My mom was saying, just totally accept it. It's okay to be average. There's no problem with that. My dad kept saying, if you did this, you could be better. And my dad was probably right. I was average and I was lazy, which is a bad <laughs> combination. <laughs> so, so you were lazy and uh, yeah, and you In didn't like practicing. school. I didn't like practicing. Uh, I didn't and, like school. And what's your dyslexia? How did that? Ma- how does that manifest itself? So it, it's a uh, it's a letter letter number switch, which was interesting because it's all different, right? Yeah, People and mine is a pretty mild yeah, verse. So when I get tired or like today I have a headache. I have to be more aware of, you know, and more diligent in proofreading things and mm-hmm. in being careful. But it made reading aloud for some reason. And it goes haywire. My brother has a much more challenging situation than I did. Um, but, you know, he's got a law degree and a master's in education. Mm. So you can deal with it. Yeah. But he actually uh, got held back a grade when we moved to Alaska because he was behind in reading. But it, I didn't learn to read until maybe the end of first grade. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember winning a book and a contest and thinking, well, this is a terrible prize because I can't read. <laughs> you, were so, you were slow to read, weren't you, Dylan? As yeah, I, recall. I was dyslexic. Yeah. 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 Very, I, was, I mean, I was his father, but I still am his father, but <laughs> trying to remember back then, you, you were very slow to read and... Because of mm-hmm. dyslexia. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and so I think, um, had it not been for a, a journalism teacher in 10th grade, uh, Mr. Yang, I don't know if you even remember him, Dad, but he begged me to come out for journalism this is um, in Anchorage, in Anchorage at Service High School, and he said, uh, "You know, we have pizza on Saturdays." And so, uh, <laughs> so I, again, people know what motivates mm-hmm. me: food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I went out for that. But also, you got the opportunity to meet with the principal about any subject you wanted. You got to ask questions about new yeah. rules that were put in place, and I loved that little bit of power. And uh, my dad knows I like to be in charge. So I took that and ran with it. And and it, Mr. Yang said, don't worry about grammar. Actually, English was his second language. Um, some of the kids didn't want to work with him because he, they couldn't understand him. I didn't mind. So Just Chinese? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, was, uh, it was perfect for me because I think that's when I started to realize that writing wasn't about all these rules. So up until then, our English class had been very daunting. And, and mm-hmm. I, was, I didn't love it because... I couldn't follow the rules. I couldn't remember how to spell thorough. I couldn't, rem- you know, I didn't right. remember the I before E, which mm-hmm. ones were the exceptions or the grammar. Mm-hmm. I didn't remember all that stuff, and which there you use. And so um, he just said, you know, we, that's what an editor's for. You write the story. You get the facts. You're the reporter. And he drew this distinction between gathering information and writing. And then he, he didn't ever articulate this, but what I found in working with him was that Writing was also supposed to be about self-expression and what, you know, conveying a message. Even a reporter. Yes, conveying a message. Yeah. It may be the message of the person you're interviewing, yeah. but it's it's not about these rules. It's not about this perfectly crafted thesis statement and supporting and how many sentences are in a paragraph. The, U, the, yeah, the yeah. UPI handbook. You know. Yeah, because the first thing you do when you go into English classes is, you know, we're going to dissect yeah. these sentences. And mm-hmm. I just literally thought I would rather kill myself. So, you know. <laughs> so so do you decide to be a journalism major in college? No? No, not, not, not at that point. At that point, I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to get out through high school and I worked at a video store 
And I, my dream... Renting videos? My dream was to run the video store. I worked at a place called Video City. It was a large... It was like a barn filled yeah. with videos. And it was like never... It was the hottest business in town. I made six bucks an hour when minimum wage was like three three sixty five, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, I hit the mother load. I'm never going to make more money than this. I'm going to manage this store someday. And they, and they offered me that right out of high school. They said, do you want to manage... We, they made a new store across town. I thought, this is it. My, mm-hmm. my ship has come in. Mm-hmm. And uh, this man over here said, I will literally kill you if <laughs> you don't go to college. And, I, and I have guns. <laughs> and, and we knew. He, no, he said, <coughs> I will do anything. He's, he even wrote me a letter, which I still really? have. Yeah. He wrote me a letter, which I still have, which basically said, this is what I see as your future. And, he, and it also outlined the futures for my siblings, none of which have go, gone according to plan, I might add. But one of the, what he said then was, I see you as a prosecutor. And mm. my dad loves to argue. So from the time I was little, we've been arguing politics, sports, religion, mm-hmm. everything, you name it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember being like nine years old and we were arguing about uh, abortion. Mm-hmm. And, and it, wasn't, it didn't matter what I believed. We, whatever he said, I had to argue the opposite. Mm-hmm. And we knew that was our role. And sometimes you would just sit down and say, what have you been reading? What are you talking about in school? Okay, let's talk about that. Let's argue about it. You know, and he just liked to debate. And so I, and so I think it's remarkable. that I mean, it, it, what was the, the impetus there was not, well, i got to be a prosecutor like my dad said. But, mm-hmm. but what it was, he, he had a, saw a better future for you than just mm-hmm. being the manager of the of Video City or whatever it was called. And both of my parents, uh, and the other career that called to me was being a hairdresser because the other lady that I, I knew... I can see that in the slightest. I know. I well, can see you managing a video <laughs> store. But. But, the, but we had a woman that was in my mom's uh, circle of friends who she made, she told me that she made $2,400 a month doing as a hairdresser. And I could not imagine, li- I thought, if you made $2,400 a month... You would never want for anything. <laughs> thought, so yeah. I just thought, that's what I got to do. I Dylan can... would like to be making $2,400 a month See? now. <laughs> yeah. Hairdresser in Alaska. But well, maybe. I'm thinking about a career change. So. But so I, so I, that was my other you know, option. And hairdressing school involved no math, which math has been a huge mm-hmm. problem for me, even and through you, college. And you went to hairdressing school? I wanted to, oh. but my dad said, look, and I actually didn't, I, go. I didn't take the SAT or the ACT. I did none of that. I wasn't planning on it. And he just said, give me one year, go to school for one year. If you don't for like college, it, yeah. I'll support you and whatever. And then my mom came to me and said, you know, don't make the same mistake I did. I've worked these menial jobs all my life because I dropped out of college. Just go get your degree. You don't have to work in the field you get a degree in. And you can be a hairdresser yeah. after that. That's what she said. You can be an overqualified mm-hmm. hairdresser. But just do this. We'll support you any way we can, um, which basically meant bringing me home for Christmas. And then when I graduated from Snow College in 88. Oh, that's right. You went to Ephraim, yeah. Yeah, well, because I had done nothing. Mm-hmm. I had a C average. I, had a, I graduated with a 2.6. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to, actually it was 2.8, and I went to Ephraim, and I took the SAT or ACT, I can't remember what it was, I think it was the SAT at that time, mm-hmm. when I got onto campus. And, uh, and then I got a student loan, for Alaska had a great student loan program, so I got a student loan from them and uh, went to school. And then I was stuck there. I didn't want to be there. Um, That's, I mean, because uh, when you're at Snow College, you're nowhere. I'm nowhere, and there were sheep yeah. walking down the street. I'd yep. never seen a live sheep before. First and, time I ever uh, went... First time I ever went up there to do a show, they were herding sheep down the street at, yes. early in the morning. Yeah, and uh, it smelled horrible because mm-hmm. it's a fall, and uh, they were working on turkeys, I think. And um, yeah. I 
just thought it was awful. And I begged my mom. We only had a, f- a pay phone, and I, I don't know what my mom's phone bill was those first couple of years because you had to call collect. And uh, it was, it was, you know, the first three months, all I did was cry to come home once yeah. a week. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I, I decided that I had to get, you know, just keep myself busy. Toughen up. So I, I didn't know. Def- no. Toughen up was not on the list. Keeping myself busy until I could go home was what I, my, my plan. So I joined uh, intramural flag football league. I um, so you signed sports up. Sports again. Yeah, I signed, saved you. Yeah, I signed up you. for a. Um, a you know, a fitness mm. class so I could meet some people. And mm. I also went and joined a couple clubs. And the clubs that I joined were journalism and uh, photography. So, uh, you and know, then, all, all that stuff sort of became... And then I en- ended up getting involved in student government through the newspaper. And things kind of settled in and settled down. And Well, what happened is I went home for Christmas and I was like, I'm that giving first, you... That first, that first year. Yeah. And I said, I'm giving you the year and then I'm out. I'm not doing this. And I went back to... I was very homesick and uh, um, my mother and I were like twins separated at birth, so it was very difficult for me, and it was very difficult for her. And then I went back to school and, again, got involved in this stuff. And um, and then when I came back for the summer and worked at the bank with my mom, which is what my mom had done mm-hmm. for many years, um, I just thought, I can't, I can't do this can't work my whole a- life. Yeah. yeah, I can't do this for five bucks an hour. And, um, you know, it was just horribly hard. And boring work, yeah. and all the things I'd been doing in college were super interesting. And I met all these people who are doing interesting things out in the world. Saw and traveling. the contrast. You yeah. saw the contrast. And I'm and I ran into friends who didn't leave Anchorage, mm-hmm. and they were doing you know they're, nothing. They were hairdressers, and they weren't even that. Yeah. yeah. So I just thought, you know, maybe I'll just maybe I'll just get the degree. You know. Mm-hmm. So I went back and and mm-hmm. got the degree. I'm glad you didn't, <laughs> you know, I'm glad you didn't become a hairdresser because I, I mean no offense but doesn't seem like grooming is really is really high on my list. No. No. no, no. And I beauty I mean, beauty I don't think I would have been a good hairdresser. Do you even wear makeup? A little bit, yeah. Just okay. like a little I wouldn't, but not much no. and not often. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. and I mean was just not to say, you know, if, yeah. if you've never seen Amy you're thinking, well god, she must be hideous. <laughs> no, I mean <laughs> No, she, she's just... She's I just, just don't care. You yeah. just... Well, but you... Yeah. I mean, you look fine. No, no, I like to shower and stuff, yeah. but and I comb my hair. But I on, over and above that, like, I, I ascribe to this idea that I'm not here for your entertainment, so mm-hmm. I'm here for my own comfort. <laughs> so uh, after... Uh, uh, after uh, Snow College, then you got another. You went to more school. I went to the U. You went to yeah. the U. Two years. Um, yeah, and my and my strategy in coming to the U was in Salt Lake. I could get a job at one of the newspapers. And did you? I I applied at the Tribune and got rejected, mm-hmm. and then I, uh, I I applied at the Deseret News, but they said we don't hire kids until you have a, until you're done with school. And then I um, went to Utah Holiday Magazine, which no longer exists. And they Sw- said, oh, "What was that guy's name who ran that?" Uh, Sw- Sw- Swenson. Swenson. Yeah. yeah. And they said, uh, we will take you as an intern, but you're an unpaid intern. I said, mm-hmm. okay, I'll do it. And so then I found out through the College of Communication at the U that um, you could get other internships or other opportunities available. So I did that for about six months. And then um, they actually offered me a paid position for a little while. But then the Deseret News um, gave me an internship and they actually paid me to do the internship there. Mm. And then after that, the AP hired me to be a stringer. Mm-hmm. So I got paid by the story. And that, be- for the, that's Associated Press. Assen- the Associated Press, and people don't know what a stringer is. Just, just you get paid by the story. Yeah, you just go cover stuff. And if they take your story, they pay you. Yeah. And, and at the time, you got paid by the word. So they'd say, you can go. So I, I might get 
ten dollars, I might get a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, it just just depends on. What yeah, and it used to, that used to, as I recall, it used to really influence how shitty the writing was because people would try and make this pad the stories out with all this crap. And well, the thing about the AP is you, um, the editing there was, then this is you know. Uh, 28 years ago, 27 years ago. So it was a long time ago, but they there was pretty heavy editing process. And so you didn't have just one editor you had to deal with. There were two or three people that it went through. And then there was the desk in New York or, you know, mm-hmm. so so it the nice thing about writing for the AP is it taught me everything that I needed to know about my job that school did not teach me. It was the AP style book, wasn't it? Yeah. It wasn't the UPI. I said UPI earlier, but the the big yeah. the Bible is the AP. It's style AP book. style guy, yeah. yeah. So, um, and that was and and that was funny because they they normally made people take a grammar and and spelling test, and when they told me about it, I said to the editor, who's Vern Anderson, who's long since retired. He actually went to work at the Tribune after the AP, mm-hmm. and um, was an editorial writer for the Tribune, but he. He said, uh, I said, look, I don't want to I don't want to work for you because I'm going to be a magazine writer and I'm going to write books and I'm not going to work for daily in daily journalism. And he said, I promise you, just trust me on this. This is what you're made to do. Um, (laughs) And I said, well, I can't pass the test. I can't. You know, I I knew I couldn't pass. To be honest, I knew I could not. uh, Well, not only that, but I just couldn't. I knew I couldn't pass the spelling test. And he said, I don't care. And I took the test and I never knew until much later that I, it, you know, obviously you right. I failed. You yes, <laughs> I failed this failing test, but they didn't care. So, and this was before, you mm-hmm. know, autocorrect and mm-hmm. Google and all that stuff. Yeah. So, so yeah, so somebody had to catch my spelling errors. But. So, so uh, did you find yourself gravitating toward, uh, so you're just a, you're a stringer mm-hmm. uh, and you could write about anything you wanted well, or just, what you, or no, did they assign they would you? call me and say, hey, the governor's having a press conference. Go. Can you be there? Yeah, yeah. The city council yeah. meeting, go. Yes. Uh, this and that. Yeah. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you, everything yeah. and anything. Yes. Did you find yourself gravitating towards certain things that you liked to cover? Um, no. Everything was terrifying at that point. Um, I think it wasn't until they sent me to cover a capital case, that just the penalty phase. The uh, So capital capital murder, mm-hmm. murder yeah. trial. What, yeah. do you, what was it? Is it a famous one that we would remember? Um, Von Lester Taylor was the guy who was sentenced to death, and I can't remember the name of his co-defendant, but oh, it was Ed Deli, Edward Deli. And um, they uh, had killed two women up in a cabin in Camas. Yeah. Um, do you remember that? Yes, so, I do. So, and it was like Christmas time, and then they kidnapped a couple of girls, mm-hmm. but the girls were recovered fine. And um, so his trial had taken place, and then they were doing the penalty phase, which determined whether or not he would get life in prison or the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And they sent me up for the verdict. And uh, that's where I met Mr. West and, and Brian uh, West, who's been an editor at the Salt Lake Tribune. No, or, I the mean, at the yeah. Deseret News for a long time and was in radio for a long time yeah. as well. Yeah, and he was the daily beat writer for mm-hmm. the for the crime desk at that point. And so, and I met a you know Paul Murphy, who worked at the AG's office and mm-hmm. now works back. He's I think he's back at Channel Four now. Um, but yeah, so I met all those guys there, and uh, um, and we were just basically listening to a little testimony, and then we waited for the jury's verdict. And then my job was to track down those jurors and find out why they did oh, what they did. Interesting. And so it immediately, my very first that was f- so fun to me was figuring out how to find these people. And again, this is before you had access to everything on your phone. And yeah. I used a pay phone. My nightmare was to be caught without a pen and a quarter. Yeah. Because I had to be able to call the AP, and mm-hmm. I couldn't. No one was going to take a collect call from me. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> and the and the and the best part was when they gave the verdict. I ran out. I dropped my quarter, and I call Vern, and I say, they they decided he's not going to get death. He's going to get life in prison. And he said, um, okay, give me your story. It's a story. Yeah. And I said, uh, well, I'm written yet. He said, well, that's not how this works. Yeah. You tell me a story. And I said, well, uh, I can't tell you that. <laughs> 
second I went in the corner and I looked out a story, a piece of paper, that I could at least sound intelligent and then I thought the bad things I I just wondered what yeah. they were doing. But so they're calling, like, dictating their story yeah. to the desk. And a lot of times and you the, see the reporters you, in the movies with those those notebooks. Did you use those notebooks? Absolutely. Those, I still those, use it. Yeah, and yeah. They, they, they call in and they look at their notes and say, okay, here's the story. They all and run they'll into say, the give phone me a, booths. Give me a quote on this. What yeah. did the guy say about that? Give me a quote on that. Yeah. What's this guy's last name? Mm. And you're, like, flipping through your notebook to try mm. to find the quote that, that corresponds with that it's aspect fun. of the story. It is exciting work. It is work. so fun. It's, I'm telling you what. It's an adrenaline rush unlike anything else that I've ever done. So then you were on the crime beat for the Deseret News. For, for for almost well, I, I I had a little break in there. Did city county government for about six months, but other than that, I was there for eight years. But yeah, I remember you telling me at some point you really didn't like it, or did you just grow to not like covering crime? I'm like I never didn't like covering crime. I didn't like covering courts. Mm-hmm. Um, I I liked. The jump and run, mm-hmm. chase the ambulances, put pieces mm-hmm. together, contact people. I like that. Some of the stuff that people being kind of first, wrote, being the first being reporter the first, on the scene of a yeah. of a crime, or, or the a, first person, or yeah. to be able to tell someone's story in those mm-hmm. situations, talking um, to people who are standing mm-hmm. around at the scene of a crime. Yeah, yeah. yep, that yeah. stuff I loved. I didn't love going and sitting in court and writing about the process of, yeah. you know, criminal justice. And so... Because it is quite tedious. Oh, it's really it's tedious. tedious. And people don't understand. And it's so different than what you read and watch. Mm-hmm. It's just... it's just All those really articulate lawyers on TV, they don't exist. Not There's many. like a handful who can even... Because they don't... You know, and they don't do it very often, no. really. I mean, I... Again, I was... Though I found out how the justice system worked when I was at court with your husband that time and mm-hmm. he was helping me with that car thing. And I thought we were going to go before the judge or something. And he says, come here. Come here. We're going to go sit down with the prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. sit in a room with the prosecutor, your husband, Ed Brass, and the prosecutor, who was very nice, mm-hmm. kind of kind of cocky, but nice. Yeah. And, you know, he said, okay, this and this and this and this and this. And Ed said this and this and this and this. And they talked. And then they said to me, what do you think? And I said, I, I don't know. What do you, what does my lawyer what say? Do you, think? What do you think I ought to do? And uh, so Ed said, take the deal. Yeah. I said, okay. Yeah. And and then I went, oh, this is how the justice system really exactly. works. Exactly. Yes, Behind yes, the yes. scenes, yes. most of it. Yeah. And it's um, I just preferred kind of the, I, and I think some of this is my. I always joke about being from a long line of rednecks, but I am, and I I am. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's true. I mean, you got a shrug out of that. A shrug from that. I feel much more comfortable in sort of the gritty, um, you know, uncouth world of uh, police officers than I did in amongst lawyers. Mm -hmm. I just did not feel ever at home in that environment. Or judges. I felt like I couldn't breathe right, or I wasn't dressed right, or you know, I was gonna do it wrong, and I didn't love it. But hanging out with these cops and. Uh, all of the stuff, and I mean, your dad's a cop, so you yeah. you sort of knew the world. Uh, but uh, I mean, you are a girlish, youngish-looking person even now. I imagine back then, you were the just the sweetest, most tender thing. Mm-hmm. Ha- My dad is laughing. Do you see how? that? <laughs> well, you looked like the t- sweetest, most tender thing. Exactly. Uh, so. Talk Don't about, judge a book by its cover. <laughs> yeah, talk about that a little yeah. bit. That aspect. It, w- of it, it was that was difficult because I did look really young. Hey, sweetie. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and uh, you know, I I recently wrote a, a column about Cam Newton where I kind of chronicle some of the, the sexual the, uh, harassment. Yeah. The uh, quarterback for the Panthers. Yes, and so I um I think that uh it was it was hard to get people to take me seriously. Yeah. And one thing that I found was that 
it actually pushed me in a, and again, I think I've been an, a harder worker because of the dyslexia, because I did want to be better. I wanted to be at least as competent as everyone else. So I did work harder in that area. So things I couldn't do well, I worked really hard to be better at. Mm-hmm. And um, I read books about writing. I, you know, and so I did the same thing with the police beat. I was young and single. And so I went out on ride alongs with police officers. I asked questions about how they did their jobs. I went to training meetings that they had. When they got trained in uh, pepper spray, I went and got trained in pepper spray. Mm-hmm. You know, I went through the concealed carry class. I, I did their training that they did on when to, when to shoot, you know, mm-hmm. deadly force and mm-hmm. escalation of force, all that stuff. So anything they would let me watch, participate in, be a part of, I did it. And, and then I would imagine that you found that that, that, that gained their... Well, Respect. It, it did two things. It made my reporting more accurate, sure. which made, gave me credibility yeah. with them. And they knew I wasn't just going to show up to get a quote. They knew I actually wanted to understand what happened. Did you ever consider, um, uh, be, you know, a lot of times people, uh, and, and I, well, a lot of times people who are in that job think, well, I'm doing this, but what I really want to do is be on the TV and stand up and do the, that same kind of reporting for the TV. Did you ever want to do that or were you ever approached to do that i was approached to do it um and uh i uh i had a couple people say you know you'd be really good at this you you're really well spoken you should try this and uh i for for a couple of reasons first of all i was afraid about reading the teleprompter because the one thing that still and to this day is a problem for me is reading aloud Mm-hmm. So if I'm asked to read something aloud, I'd rather memorize it or memorize the essence of it and just say it. Because reading from a teleprompter is like the kiss of death. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you got not to mention the cameras and lights and people. and That part, didn't, I didn't get... I mean, Make that, it all worse. Yeah. I wasn't as... I, I think talking to people in the really depths of horrible situations got me over any... I, I, and I can tell you exactly when it shifted for me. There was a shooting in Salt Lake where a six-year-old boy killed his seven-year-old brother with his dad's gun that was under a bed. And Brian West sent me out to talk to the family about why did you leave your guns laying around, that kind of stuff. What a so, hard job. Oh, no. So And, and you, there's no training. They don't train you. This is not like I don't have chaplain training or anything like that. And so I'm sitting in my car. I called my mom before I left the office bawling because I didn't want to go do it. And uh, I'd been on the job about six months, and I... Just remember sitting in my car thinking, I would not do this. I, Amy Donaldson, would never do this to somebody. I would not ask this question. I would not intrude. But I have to do this as a reporter. And what I had to do was find the reason why this was important. Why does the rest of the world need to knock on this door? Tell us. I think it is important. I absolutely tell us why. So for me it was, there, there are probably a thousand families in this very city that this guy lives in who are living in the same situation, who don't understand the reality of living with the kind of decision that he just, this dad now has to live with, right? And this little boy has to live with. And so I just thought if there, and the guy absolutely, so I did finally knock on the door and and talk to them and I, they they only spoke Spanish. I didn't speak Spanish. I spoke enough, uh, you know, skated Mm -hmm. through my, got my C pluses in Spanish and to get my degree, but but I gave them uh, my name and phone number and 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 Brian's name and phone number because Brian speaks Spanish, hmm. and the dad did end up. I thought, well, that was you know I did my job. Yeah, that guy's never going to call us. Mm-hmm. He called Brian. He did the story with Brian, and it was a really beautiful story, very heartbreaking, but also this sort of 
you know, learn from me. Learn from my mistake. I, I kept thinking about it. I thought I put them up. Here's how I had them. Mm-hmm. You know, because you don't know what the facts are. Mm-hmm. He thought he had them safely put away, um, and, and they weren't. And his child, unfortunately, now has to live with that. <clears throat> and he, that's the thing he felt the worst about. I mean, he, you, there's so many layers of yeah. what you feel guilty about, but the fact that his boy was going to grow up with that was, you know, weighed on him the most. And have you, you ever used that now as an entree to do those kind of things? Because you, uh, I think you could say to people that you have to go talk to that are in that situation. Mm -hmm. Think about it this way. This may somehow help other people if you talk to me a little bit about this story. And and that is an honest thing, not trying to manipulate them. I think what I often offer people is I never ask people, if they say I don't want to do it, I say, okay. If they say I'm not sure, Mm -hmm. then I say here's what I know. Mm -hmm. And what I know is that you have no idea who needs to hear your story. Whether it's a really uplifting story about a woman with rheumatoid arthritis who runs marathons or a dad whose son has killed his brother yeah. with his gun. Yeah. I, you just don't know. I, I write a story and over and over in my 25 years on the job, somebody, usually multiple people, will call me or come to me and say, um, I, I can't even tell you how this has changed me or yeah. what it's done for me or what it's, that it's lifted me or that it's... You know, I went out and bought a gun safe or whatever mm-hmm. happened. You get those that feedback. And that is, for me, what is payment in this job. More so than, uh, you know, what we get or, you know. I mean, that's why I've stuck with writing. Because uh, it's it allows me to communicate somebody else's story or perspective or experience. And I'm not a part of that. And that's why you I can go on out. the TV. Exactly. Yeah. Because when you go on TV, they look at you. Yeah. You're part of the story. They see you. Yeah. They judge they, you. Yeah. You know, they like you yeah. or they don't like you. Your personality becomes mm-hmm. into play. And I much prefer them to pretend I don't exist. Yeah. You're, I mean, you can do, you can be a stand-up reporter on TV and do a moving, moving story and a moving job. And people say, why were you wearing that scarf? Yeah. That was awful. Yeah, or they don't like your voice, yeah. or they don't like that you wore purple. I mean, I had a friend uh, who doesn't work in this market mm-hmm. anymore, but it was her station that talked to me about coming over and doing some stories with them or working for them. And the first thing was it was that I was surprised by was less money than the Deseret News paid me. So and this, yeah, people think the TV reporters make a lot. They don't make a lot. Of oh, money. especially not a jump and run reporter. No, no yeah. you're you're like the lowest on the totem pole, yeah. and because it's where most people start. People were always shocked that that's where I want to stay. Same thing in sports. Yeah. I love prep sports. That's my favorite place to work. And that's usually where people start, and they just can't wait to get off. But yeah. for me, that's those are the most interesting so, stories. So why the switch to, to sports then? Why you, you loved the doing the crime stuff, really? Yeah. I, I, for some reason, I was under the impression you didn't care for it, but um, I think, why the switch? I think over time, I, there there is one thing. So Ed and I got married um, in 1998, and I had been doing the crime beat for about seven years then. And um, I... Um, I found that we together were a pretty pessimistic couple. <laughs> <laughs> He's been doing criminal defense work all of his adult life, and I'd been covering crime and corrections m- most of my adult life. And you start to see the world as a pretty nasty place when that's the that, hard. Yeah, and so we didn't trust anybody. Rachel wasn't allowed to go in the front yard without one Your of daughter. us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, there was it was. Um, I just I have such an optimistic mother. This guy's a pessimist. Your dad, he's yeah. everyone's trying to put one over on us, mm-hmm. kill us, mute, rape us, he's, whatever. He's correct. Yeah, and I mean he's he 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 probably kept me out of a lot of uh, terrible situations as a teenager because he 
scared the crap out of me. <laughs> um, but my mom was like the most trusting to a fault mm. um, uh, people. And so, but having a mother or, or a parent who is trust the world, believes in the world, loves the world is a really a gift. I mean, it is a gift to be yeah. a positive human being. And I feel like I got that from my mother. Mm-hmm. So I felt like one of us should convey that to our children. Yeah. And so I said, I just feel like when I see rapists at every corner and every man is out to get my kid or mm-hmm. kidnap my kid or whatever, um, I just felt like I probably needed to think about covering something else so that one of us wasn't such a pessimist. So that was the beginning of it. I ended up quitting. And I was going to actually work on a book. And um, uh, I had uh, our, Ed and I had our daughter. So Ed had four kids. I had Rachel. And then we have Daphne together. Mm-hmm. And um, I had Daphne, and she has a congenital heart defect. Mm. And so I needed, he does self employed, didn't have health insurance. So I had to go back to work for insurance. And I could go back to my old night police job, which was sort of what I had planned. Yeah. But my old boss was in sports. And he knew I had always liked Who's sports. Who's that? Uh, Chuck Gates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he, um, he said to me, Hey, if you come, come try this, give it a try, see what you like. I went and did a tennis tournament for him and he was like, you're a natural. You got to do this. Although I will admit my husband very politely pointed out that I had forgotten to put the score. I've been so happy about the story (laughs) I got. I forgot to put the score. Oh, and I'm sure he very politely said. He did. He said, you know, this is really great. Oh, did he really? Yeah. Oh no, he's very, (laughs) no, I have to say. I don't have a bigger fan, in, in, as as mean as everyone thinks Ed is, and in, in, in how he, we kind of give each other a hard time. I don't have a bigger fan than him. Mm-hmm. He reads everything I write. He can actually, he's read so much of my writing that he can actually, if I do a piece with another writer, pick out the parts that I wrote. Really? Yeah. That's... He's it's a sta- and I mean, he's a smart guy, mm-hmm. so I, mean, I don't know that everybody's fans could do that. But So what do you find in sports? Uh, you know, and I've I've kidded you uh, a lot over yeah. the, the last few years when, <laughs> when you come on the show in the morning uh, on Monday morning, and I'll say, "Oh, it's another one of those heartwarming." T- you know, <laughs> yeah. how many hankies how many will hankies? I to, to yeah. read your inspiring uh, story? And and you take it well. well you're you not, take it well. You're not you're not mischaracterization. You're yeah. not mix, mischaracterizing what I do. Mm-hmm. So what I I actually put the call out sometimes, and one and 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 uh, unsolicited they come to me sometimes, mm-hmm. but. In sports, it's taken me a while. I hated sports for the first year. I love sports. Being a sports writer is completely different than being a sports fan. Mm-hmm. And um, I uh, I just hated it. I couldn't figure, I couldn't find my groove. And I asked all the sports writers, how do you cover a beat? How do you source? How do you do this? And I felt like we were getting these kind of cliche answers and nobody really wanted us around and you know you couldn't really have good conversations That's and t- it is it was I mean, really it's really a weird environment i mean and it is terrible when you watch the uh, the tv sports reporters absolutely stuff and it's just you know it's the same well we didn't play our game and it's the same answers all the time absolutely and so i did these features for the first four months and it was amazing and i loved it and then i got assigned to beat and so you go to a jazz shoot around and you're uh, interviewing people, and all you're getting is these cliches, right? And I thought, this is—is is this a kid? Are they just joking with me? What's? And nobody looks at you in the eye, and nobody mm-hmm. wants to talk to you. And they pretend like they don't see you. And I was like, what? 
what am I doing wrong? And so I asked the other reporters and they're like, oh, this is just the way it is. And um, I said, do they send these guys to a class where they learn all these cliches? Because how do they all know at every level? Just the culture. You know, yeah. yeah. And and I and it's it was just really discouraging. And it reminded me of when I switched to government reporting. The thing I hated about government reporting is you can never have honest conversation with people. Uh, you know, and so yeah. it was always like off well, I'll tell you off the record. But I want to have this conversation in public because people need to know. Like, why is this important? Why does this matter? How is this going to impact them? Well, I can't tell you the real truth, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you this. This is what you should put in the story. So how do you get, so what did you do to find the way into this? So after about, so I tried really hard to model myself after the men and I was miserable. And about a year and a half, two years into it, um, a, our, one of our columnists, Brad Rock, said to me, um, and he didn't mean to, He's, we've talked about this since, he didn't really mean to give me career advice, but he just basically said, look, you know more about these people and their personal lives than anybody I've been around. Mm-hmm. Stop trying to be us. Like the, the, the thing that makes you valuable to us is that you're you and that you come at things differently. That's what's interesting mm-hmm. about working with you is that you see different stories. And I was like, oh. you know, it didn't occur to me that I was trying to fit myself into a mold that I yeah. was never going to fit in. Yeah. I mean, I always talk about it being a fraternity and you can never be a member because you're not a dude. Yeah. And, and, I, and it's just there may be women who, who love sports the exact same way that our male reporters do, but I don't. There was a woman at our paper who loved covering them, loved stats, loved crunching numbers. That was her thing. Mm-hmm. I like to know how do you get yourself to the pinnacle of your profession, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. How do you come back time and time again when people tell you you're not good enough? How do you get yourself up for playing 161 baseball games a year? Or, or 82 basketball 82 games. 82 basketball. Yeah. God, that's hard. Yeah, and and or... After you fail and fail and fail, how do you suddenly f- turn it around? Like, what turns mm-hmm. it around for you? How do you um, become a ski jumper when you didn't, never lived in a place that has snow? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's just all these th- For me, the fascinating thing is how do humans, you know, become excellent, mm-hmm. whatever it is. So that's what I started <coughs> sort of focusing on, and it saved me. And really, it was women's softball, girls' softball, high school softball, uh, I happened to meet a coach. He's, he was at BYU for a while. I don't I don't know where he's coaching pitching somewhere now, but um, he did all of these sort of um, mental exercises with his team and stuff. And so they were it was every conversation I had with him was about life philosophy and overcoming hardship and you know mm-hmm. sort of um, how do you find confidence in yourself when everything all the statistics tell you you suck. And I just completely became hooked. Yeah. I'm like, this is what I was supposed to be doing. So, so you write uh, you write a column uh, mm-hmm. uh, once, a, once a week. Yeah. So it comes out on Monday, and, and you focus on those things. It's kind of more long form. Yeah. But then you go cover, still go cover events, and I Games. think you're going to go cover yeah. something today, aren't you? Yeah, I am. Tournament today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so so, so and, and that's a different kind of, or do you still try to use those same principles when you're just covering the events? Well, I, I think... Um, I think I try to do all of it. I mean, I've learned a lot in 18 years of sports writing, but it's it's more like I there are things I have to do the way every other sports writer does them, mm-hmm. and um, that the the job just demands you have to put the score in the story. Uh, everybody <laughs> cares about that, <laughs> but 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 also I found that tell Gina that will you? <laughs> <laughs> but also I found that and our consultant <laughs> that the world has kind of shifted into my universe the sports world has like i don't i mean in the last 20 years 
I think you see more and more like NBC's Olympic coverage is mm-hmm. completely in my wheelhouse. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's much more about and to the point of being ridiculous. Yeah. It's, it's almost a yeah. cliche. Well, yeah. it's the internet. I mean, you know, like uh, you can easily find out the score to a game. You don't have to get a newspaper and read it. You can just quickly, oh, there yeah. it is, easy. But what you, you know, what you can't do on the internet is look at the individuals as much. That's why you need a reporter to go in there and do it. Find out yeah. about them. You yeah. can easily hook. I mean, you you know, you don't need any people involved to put a score on the internet. Yeah. You could put an electrode on the hoop, and it can automatically update a website. You don't need somebody to tell you that, mm-hmm. but you do need somebody, like you said, to tell mm-hmm. you how do you learn to ski in a place where there's no snow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or why did that even come into your did, universe? Did you ever go back? Uh, did you ever decide you and go back and read some of the uh, famous sports writers to? You know, I don't, I know, uh, you know, and I haven't really read, I just know some of the names like Roger Angel and these guys who've written things that are very highly praised about sports. Did you? I have, and I, and I, um, I used to get the annual best sports writing uh, kind of anthology. In fact, my husband got it for Christmas for me every year for, I don't know, four or five years. And then I stopped reading them. So I said, don't buy them anymore. Um, Because I just, uh, I just lost interest in reading about my own universe. Mm -hmm. So if I'm reading, I'm reading about stuff that I don't have that has nothing to do with me and what I cover. Now, and uh, how do you uh, reflect the world uh, more broadly through what you write about? Do and do you do that? I think you do, but well, I try. I mean, uh, do I know, always do it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I got. I mean, you know, because there are so many important issues that, are, that go on, and you try to. I think you try to, and I see it in your column, and mm-hmm. that you you try to reflect the the society, larger parts of society, by writing about sports. Um, I think the column has made me think about that more. So the column is not something I started out doing. So I did a little prep column that was just kind of a feature on a prep kit, or maybe I'd write about a prep, a sports issue mm-hmm. that ran, you know, it was maybe four or 500 words, and it ran once a week. Um, but it was a conversation with a, an editor, a former sports editor, where he basically said, we don't have any women's voices on the front page and in columns, and you're the option. So if you're not willing to do it, you can't criticize us for not having diversity. Mm-hmm. And and he, I f- said, you know what? I don't want to do it, but I'm going to try. And so as long as you guys accept that, I'm not going to do it the way you guys, the other guys, do it. Mm-hmm. And it it has been a love hate relationship. And I don't know that um, I always love it, but I write about the things I care about. And so they turn out to be uh, the fact that I think that um, the Washington Redskins should change their name because I have a sister who's native and. I see the impact that subtle racism has on someone mm-hmm. when you're not trying to bully them, but you just you just do it. You just hang on to these things we've done forever and, and why those are damaging. So so everybody's in my family's basically ended up in my column a little bit. <laughs> my friends, my relatives, I think only Ed has escaped, but <laughs> but uh his turn will come. His turn will come. <laughs> and everyone knows my dad's been the subject a couple of times. <laughs> but I think that um what it's made me do is think of things in a that the reason I love sports, the reason it's been such a part of my life all my life is that um, it is both a break from the world and a crystallization of the issues the world is facing. So it's this microcosm of our issues. Well, it seems certainly lately more and more that. But it's but it is always both, mm-hmm. and so I always go back to um, 
and I'm his name is escaping me, but he was the marsh the coach at Marshall after Marshall had that plane crash and lost almost their entire oh, uh, yeah. team. Mm-hmm. Remember, and that's the reason the NCAA changed their rules and allowed freshmen to play was so that Marshall could compete in football. Mm-hmm. But I remember him, and he actually wrote me. I wrote a column about uh, seeing that show and and that whole We Are Marshall. Yeah, We Are Marshall, and and that whole idea. There's a book that 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 film is based on, um, and um, but he said, you know, we want to get back to the point. Because someone said, what's the point of this? This is not honoring them by getting slaughtered every mm-hmm. game. This mm-hmm. is not. And we've seen this all the time. I'm playing for my dead coach. And then they go out and get blown out, yeah. you know. And the co- they're like, man, your coach hates you. <laughs> Why yeah. did you play? Don't honor me with that game. <laughs> but but, but, um, but what he said was, we are honoring them. Because we're going on with our lives. And someday we're going to get to the point where winning is the only thing that matters. And until then, this is what will be. This will be what sustains us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sports to me in a nutshell. It is what we do because we have to have a break or because it's how we're getting through or it's how we're managing the tough stuff. And then it gets to the point where it's just a break for us. It's just pure joy. It's just... Well, it's hard, it's hard to do sometimes, though. I mean, you know, and I'm the cynical side of that whole thing, you mm-hmm. know, and I always, you know, cynically say, yeah, sports really builds character, <laughs> and then and then do some ho- yeah. s- horrible story about a high school team that's racist sure. or uh, hazing or whatever, uh, you know, yeah. and these little assholes who do these things, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, sports really does build character. But it is it is a reflection mm-hmm. of what, what is happening in the world when you hear stories like that as well. Well, and I think that those little a-holes are doing stuff across the board anyway. They're doing it in band. They're doing it in cheerleading. They're doing it everywhere. And so, um, but but in athletics, like one coach said to me, because I said to him, well, can you do anything about this bad behavior we were talking about? And he said, of course I can. I have what these kids want. And that's the thing. When you have, those teachers had what I wanted. They they had this opportunity Mm -hmm. to play basketball or opportunity to play softball. When you have what someone wants... You can affect real change, and that's uh, and and if that's teaching them teamwork, if that's teaching them um, sacrifice, if that's teaching them hard work or mm-hmm. discipline or whatever, um, is every coach good? No, but neither is every parent, neither is every teacher. You know, so I think that th- I've learned more. I'll tell you this: I've learned more about parenting from prep coaches than I have from the dozens and dozens of parenting books that I have Dr. read. Dr. Spock. Yes. That, yeah. And believe me, I have a whole mm-hmm. library full of uh, parenting mm-hmm. books that mm-hmm. I got halfway through and thought, does this person mm-hmm. have a kid? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about... Like, we have uh, We have to... Amy's got to get going to a yeah, game. Let's so. talk, can we yeah. talk quickly about yeah. your podcast that uh, sure, you've sure. started, mm-hmm. Voices of Reason. Mm-hmm. You do it with a colleague at the Deseret News, Jason Lee, who... Mm-hmm. What does he write about? He covers uh, military issues and business. He's also the star of My Name is Earl. Yeah, and he, <laughs> he no. wishes. Oh no, he, no, he's not. So, so what? What? Uh, why did you start doing this? And uh, how did the Deseret News? What? How do? How, what do they think about it? Well, I should start by saying the Deseret News has nothing to do with our podcast. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it is. Uh, we do it on KSL's platform, mm-hmm. and uh, this podcast came about. Um, Jason Lee and I, uh, we've been friends for a long time and we've had many a uh, good debates. My, my, uh, penchant for debating and arguing with people I have carried with me everywhere throughout my life. Just my dad has not always been my partner in that. So, <laughs> so Jason and I came, we just would, you know, debate, argue, uh, discuss and pretty reasonably, but we, I came away from our discussions enlightened and he would say the same thing. And so uh, during last year's election, um, well, it was really 
during the police, the officer involved shootings uh, with Afri- uh, African Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Black mm-hmm. Rise of Black Lives Matter and stuff. So um, he was really frustrated, and I'm trying to remember if it was after Eric Garner or it was after one case in particular. Uh, I think it was Eric Garner. Mm. Um, the gentleman was choked to death. Oh, and, uh, yeah, in New York, selling cigarettes. Yeah. I can't breathe. Yeah, the I Have can't you read breathe. the Matt Taibbi piece about that? I have not. Matt Taibbi yeah. wrote a, was written a book called I Can't Breathe. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did see the release yeah. of that, but yeah. I haven't read the book, yeah. but... But he, um, I think it was after that, and he was just, uh, you know, just frustrated. We were just discussing mm-hmm. it. And my dad, being an officer, my sister being an officer, um, and then doing all those ride-alongs. I mean, I, like, I felt like I went through police academy and didn't yeah. get a badge. But, um, but, uh, but so I understood why officers would feel the way they do. And I also understand the legal standard. So the legal standard for uh, deadly force is if an officer feels threatened or is protecting someone else, right? So there's... That's a pretty absolute standard. And if I tell you I'm afraid, then the standard has been met. Well, that uh, my, that Michael Brown case in Chicago, I think, I think that's why that officer got off. Oh, you mean Ferguson? Uh, Ferguson. Yeah, yeah. Uh, why, why the, I think that's why the officer got off. He said, I was scared. Mm-hmm. That guy scared me. Mm-hmm. Now there's a whole debate about why, why? that guy might have scared him. So that's and but. that and that's what Jason and I were discussing was mm-hmm. the legal standard versus what we as society would think is fearful yeah. or whatever. And so um and what you're charged to do as a police officer because I told him I don't want that standard changing. I have a sister out there carrying a gun around in a badge and she's a target and I don't want that standard changing because I want her to feel comfortable making the decision she needs to make. I also have every confidence in my sister to make the right choice. So, right? so voices of reason. Yeah. Uh, Jason Lee and Amy Donaldson, and it's the and it's the two of you. And I've listened to a couple of them. Yeah. It, it really is the two of you arguing a lot of times. Sometimes, and then we have a lot of guests on. So mm-hmm. we have we recently had my parents were on, uh, but we recently had a a, a deaf uh, advocate on, and and that was fascinating. And we had a Trump voter on. We had because Jason had not met a Trump voter, and I said, well, let's bring somebody in and talk to them about. They're everywhere. A woman. <laughs> why why a woman would want to support Trump mm-hmm. and. I think he said that one of the most, you know, educational things we've done. We brought a lot of professors in. We talk mm-hmm. about uh, gender racism and uh, racial battle fatigue. We've done one on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been it's it's what we're interested in. And we basically started the podcast um, because writing editorials was a slower process. And I said, let's just take it to KSL and see if they'll let us do a podcast. And they put us they I mean, they mm-hmm. embraced us and have let us run with it. And. Mm-hmm. Don't tell us what to do. They they support us. So yeah, yeah, it's been really fun, and I don't know how long we'll do it. I think we're talking about doing some things to expand it, and I've been talking to Dylan about ways in which local podcasters could, because there's so many really quality local podcasts, um, and I just think uh, if you're not already listening to podcasts, you may not know that this content is out there. So people, uh, yeah, oh, and we have to change our promos. Uh, here that we run here about our podcast, two or three of them say, and so such and such podcast airs every, you know, wait, no. doesn't yeah, air doesn't. anywhere. Well, it's that's a, that's the question I was getting. It's available. Where does it play? How do I, how do I? What time's it on? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what time's your podcast on? Whenever you want to listen. Uh, it's, it a, it's called Voices of Reason, and people can just find it by. I f- you can go to KSL app, or you can go to iTunes. It's on uh, all, I just, everything. I use this uh, app called Podcast Addict. Mm-hmm. And I just typed it into the search, and there it came, and there yeah, it is. It's any, like, anybody that that allows you to listen to a podcast, it's there. Yeah. So, and um, and and we drop them every Tuesday right now, and so and we haven't taken a break. We haven't done the season thing. We just do you, it. You've done every week for yeah. how you got like fifteen or sixteen of them or something like that. 
Um, well, no, they've been. We've been. We're coming up on a year anniversary. Oh, really? Because I think the, when I we took well, a little break went and to it, I only got like thirteen or fourteen that dropped into my. But anyway. yeah, that might be the most recent ones because they. Mm-hmm. We did take a a break when I went to Africa because I was gone a month, mm-hmm. and I think Jason did it. He did a healthcare one by himself, and I mean, it's, it's a tougher thing to do on your own. So. It's Voices of Reason, Amy Donaldson mm-hmm. and Jason Lee. Amy writes uh, a, a fine sports column which is inspirational and sometimes will make you cry, uh, every Monday in the Deseret News. And then uh, are you always byline when you write stuff for them, just mm-hmm. just reporting on sports in general? Yeah, uh, and I, d- I still do some news stuff. I still cross over and do some projects at the news desk. Oh, shoot. For, here and there. For, for what? We're out of time. Oh, I wanted, Forgive me. We're going to have to have Amy back. You can ask There's what? a whole story I wanted you to tell, but you have to leave. Uh, about, about what? I'm about okay. going to that um, and covering that execution. Oh well, I can tell you that I have time if you want to do if you're you unless sure? you want this thing to be like six hours long. Mm-hmm. Well, well, we don't want it to be six we don't, hours. We don't, long, we don't want we don't, to bore people. We're we fine. don't put we don't put I'm your good. your fine time wise. Yeah. Well, then tell us that story, but but because Dylan wants to hear it. Are you okay with that? Yeah. Okay. In but, 1996, you're talking about John Albert Taylor. Uh, it might have been more because I remember you talking about it. On their show, so okay. The, so then it was well, more recent. Maybe you went so to the prison and watched. I the only one I've witnessed is John Albert Taylor, and he was killed by fi- firing squad. And that was in 1996. Maybe it was that long ago. That yeah, I remember. And then I did come in. And I think I came in and talked to you guys about what happens at an execution during mm. Ronnie Lee Gardner's. Ronnie, That's, it's okay. Ronnie Lee Gardner because I, I wrote the story about him as well because I knew him. Okay. Yeah, and it's. Uh, uh, I know Doug Fabrizio was at that one, and I, for some reason, I think I was maybe invited to go and didn't go. Or yeah, I, I mean, think, it, I think I decided not to. not to do it because they because yeah. when they're when they execute somebody, they allow a certain number of of people from the press to go, mm-hmm. and they kind of put that out to all of the press. I think yeah. I think somebody from the prison asked me if I would wanted to do it, and I said no. Yeah, I think, uh, I think I don't know there's, how. A, there's a couple radio spots of it. So the, it's it's dictated by statute who mm-hmm. gets to go, and mm-hmm. it's major news organizations. But then they have these like uh, I think there's some radio or broadcast ones that are kind of open to mm-hmm. them to evolve with whoever's yeah. in the market. Yeah. And so they, when I did it, I, I remember because uh, there was two women, me and another woman whose name was also Amy, who now works at our paper. <laughs> so the four people who'd covered the. F- firing squad execution in 96 all worked at the Deseret News mm. um, at the time of Ronnie Lee Gardner's execution. So, uh, now you, so you saw the execution of John Albert Taylor mm-hmm. and I, I remember you telling us about it but re- just refresh the, our memories about, because sure. the people listening don't know this, uh, what, uh, what, what is that like? Uh, to watch it? Yeah. Um, for me it was uh, honestly pretty quick. It was over. It seemed, you know, people ask me, what did you think was inhumane? No, I didn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think killing someone is inhumane sort of mm-hmm. inherently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think that uh, if I have to make a choice, I would totally go with that option over. Um, firing squad? Firing yeah. squad, I would go with over any of the other options, electrocution or um, lethal injection. They, because they, you can see what happens and they're done. It's quick. Yeah, it's yeah. quick. It, it. I don't have any idea if it's painless because we don't get to ask them that, sure. right? Mm-hmm. There's no. Right. Uh, the only thing I saw him react in any react because they're so they're strapped down. They're sitting in a chair. Mm-hmm. They're in dark clothing. They have a black. The chair is painted black. Yeah. Um. Everything is black. So they don't, they don't have like a white shirt, so you can see the. So you can blood, see you know? there is a <laughs> there is a target on your heart, like a little white yeah. piece of paper, mm-hmm. and everybody's impression of what happened to that was different. Six 
six people with rifles. I think it was only five. Five, and yeah. and and they. Uh, I think this is a really an, an, an interesting yeah. conceit. What mm-hmm. what they do. One of those rifles is not loaded. Yeah, well, has a blank. A There's a blank in it. The others have. And and the and the people who are using the rifles don't know which one that is. So I guess you can always say to yourself, "I'm pretty sure I didn't fire the." Sure. I get. I don't. I see. I sort of don't get that in a way. Well, if you're on the firing squad, you know. You well, volunteered. Yeah. Let me just say that I have secretly. I've never done a story on it. I would love to do a story on it, but. Um, I've talked to a person who was a participant and another person who was a volunteer who did not did not get to be on the firing squad. But it had but who was willing. And let me doesn't say Doesn't it have to be people in law enforcement? Yes. Okay. And they have to be people who are willing to do it. Yeah. And so you have to be comfortable with that. And yeah. and in most cases, they are people who are philosophically supportive of the death penalty. And so why should so, they put a bl- it, have no. one with a blanket? Makes well, no they, sense. So they've done that. That's people that's lawmakers who wouldn't do it, ah. saying we should probably give people a mental. Well, maybe. And we'll, the other thing is, you don't know how you'll respond to killing someone until you kill them. Well, yeah, and maybe so, we should. Maybe we should uh, make it a law that uh, if there is another firing squad, and there could be, yeah, uh, that uh, somebody from the legislature, by mandate, by law, has to be on the firing squad. Why would that? Why would you want to do well, that? Well, maybe they'd change the law. Well, I would go a step no. further get and rid say, of the death penalty. I would you, go further and say it should be like jury duty. Just regular people? regular c- citizens are. Uh, I don't, no, I don't think so. Mm. I, I think that, I think the way they have it now, if you're going to have it, is, is that, for me, that's not the problem. The firing squad is not where you have the conversation. The firing squad, com- or the conversation about whether or not you should be doing this comes way, way earlier. Well, starting with who has access to competent defense lawyers. Sure. And how much is the state willing to pay for adequate defense, so, yeah. while they're paying two, three, four, five times more for prosecutions. I was right. very, when I was younger, I was very anti-death penalty. Then I kind of became more pro-death penalty as I got older, and I said, well, you know, there are people, and I still believe this, there are people who just don't deserve to be alive. Uh, but yeah. then I just I don't know that your, I want any, I, yeah. I talked to your husband about this extensively for mm-hmm. a while, and uh, he talked about the just, if for no other reason, just the disparities in, you know, defense and who mm-hmm. gets a good defense and who doesn't, and 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 uh, the and the disproportionate number of people of color who mm-hmm. get executed, and it's not, and that has little to do or nothing to do with, uh, with how many crimes are committed by people of color. It has more mm-hmm. to do with whether they can get a good defense or not. And I, and yeah. I find, so now I'm against it again. Yeah, and I think. Um you won't meet a stauncher death penalty opponent than my husband, yeah. but but he's also worked forty years in the business, so he knows something about it. Um, but he, there there are a myriad of problems with the way we deliver the death penalty in this country, mm-hmm. and the disparity in on on any number of levels. And he's quick to point those out. And and I think you know recently we just listened to a a. A discussion about this with the drug epidemic. What happened when crack cocaine was around versus this yeah. heroin and opioid e- epidemic? Mm-hmm. Um, who are the victims and, and how do we treat them? Mm-hmm. And it's much different um, because the victims are white, because mm-hmm. the people, the addicts are white. So I think that um, the, I heard Ed, and this was a, I don't know if you remember this serial killer named Roberto Arguez, but he yeah. ended up, yeah, so he ended up killing four women mm-hmm. that we know of. He claimed to have killed more people. Mm-hmm. But, um, 
uh, Ed was, he didn't want a lawyer, so Ed was assigned to be his counsel because you have to have a lawyer. The system doesn't do well either if you want to volunteer for the death penalty because the system anticipates a fight. And so when somebody wants to take responsibility and just get punished, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't go well. Do yeah. yeah, nobody knows what to do with that. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a nightmare. Um, and if you remember correctly, Roberto Aguirre ended up sort of killing himself by ingesting some stuff. And oh, had, yeah, 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 yeah. So, mm-hmm. so it wasn't, I don't know that it was term suicide. It might have been a medical problem, but he, he basically killed himself. He killed himself. Yeah, and so, um, but he didn't want a lawyer because he just wanted to die. And uh, he skipped the criminal phase and just went right to penalty. And, mm-hmm. and Which you can do. Yeah. yeah and and, uh, and, and uh, actually a lot of people in that situation do because they feel like they've done the, the crime. Who committed the crime is not the issue. It's what the punishment should be. Yeah. But in that case, the victims wanted to come in and testify. And Ed gave a pretty impassioned plea. And I don't, David Young was the judge at the time. Oh, yeah. And, uh, um, and, and uh, Dave gave, he gave what I thought was the most moving uh, speech I've ever heard in a court about why should and I thought how are you going to argue that victims can't come in because I'm a huge proponent of that right and he his speech was basically aimed at if the loss of life diminishes us as human beings then it doesn't matter what people are or do in this world so it we are just as diminished if it's a woman dying of starvation in the Sudan as we are if it's the pillar of the community who gets gunned down mm-hmm. in a crime yeah. so the loss of life is what is important, and that's what you're assessing, not this guy's more valuable than these people. And all you do when you have victims in is try to establish value, and the value is that life is valuable. And we we have reverence for that aspect. So he gave a, what I thought was, and in fact, Judge Young was moved to tears. Mm. And it was, but but that's the kind of person you have to be to do that kind of work. And yeah. those people are more and more rare which makes it more and more difficult for me to deal with the idea of the death penalty. And you say you knew Ronnie Lee Gardner. Yeah. In that you knew him because... The, I now, covered corrections for six years. That's how you knew him because mm-hmm. you, you had interviewed yeah. him in jail. And he was the guy yeah. who broke out... Uh, he was... What was he originally? Was he, he was arrested for murder. He murdered a, a, a barkeep, uh, yeah. shot him as he robbed him. And then, and then when he was at court, mm-hmm. he somehow wrested a gun away from one of the... No, they had a girlfriend that hit a gun for him at a uh, water fountain, and he shot, shot his a way out of the court, and he killed a lawyer. He killed yeah. a he killed a public defender. Yeah, if you remember, his family said, "Please don't murder Ronnie Lee Gardner in our son's name. He would not want this." He spent oh, the, his the, life. The public defender. He spent his life defending these kind of guys. Mm-hmm. And Ed said, "I have it, that one was hard for him because mm-hmm. that's his job. He's done this his whole life, mm-hmm. and to have a guy put to death because he killed you is like." the very thing that you would fear, right? Yeah. So they said, please don't do it. But the bailiff had had lifelong injuries, and his family was really supportive of the death penalty. Yeah, And, and I just remember those pictures of Ronnie Lee Gardner sitting on the... Because they, they yeah. shot him before he got away, mm-hmm. and he was sitting there bleeding <laughs> on the... On the park strip or something, you yeah, know. yeah. Over in mm-hmm. the when it was just the library square, that's where the jail and the yeah. courthouse was. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and, and so I actually, um, I didn't get access to him. I talked to him on the phone. Uh, he told me he was going to do his interview, his one and only interview. He got to do with Larry King. Uh, so um, hello, yeah. So he was like, Ronnie Lee Gardner, I want to give him, and, and like most inmates, Ronnie was all about getting his message out <clears> to <throat> as many people as possible because his, I don't know if you remember this, but his brother had started some farm for troubled people, mm. and so he wanted people to donate or go there or help them or support that effort. And so his family was helpful to me, and then I found a ton of court documents because Ronnie Lee Gardner was in the system from the time he was two. 
His first contact with the system was at two years old when he was wandering in a diaper, a dirty diaper, as a child. And so this guy grew up in this. In, at 10, he was put in youth Foster. corrections. No, youth, youth corrections. Corre- because they had nowhere to put an incorrigible boy. So this is the life he had. We made Ronnie Lee Gardner. And so uh, I just, I talked to, and I talked to the victims and I went to his hearings. They had a commutation hearing. All of his victims spoke there and just tried to. What sort of a person did you find him to be? Ronnie Lee Gardner? Yeah. Uh, everybody loved him. I mean, he was just, he was a classic criminal. He was always trying to, you know, work a deal. Uh, he loved to talk because he could get out of his cell. And, you know, mm-hmm. they only got an hour out. Had a certain amount of charm. Uh, very charming. Very funny. Um, wouldn't trust him. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, uh, just one of those guys, you know, a yeah. used car salesman type guy, mm-hmm. you know. Not to disparage all you car salesmen out there. Yeah, I'd, but I mean, but that's but the, that, yeah, that the stereotype classic, yeah. that, like, I will buy this from you whether I need it or not mm-hmm. because you're so charming. And we have all fell, fallen victim to those people. Yes, and the officers loved him, and I, I enjoyed him. He was a great quote. He was fun to talk to. And one of the stories I did with him that I thought was the most useful and profound was, what is it like to be on death row when they're, when they're getting ready for an execution? So he mm-hmm. was one of the few. Some of the guys were really emotional about it or very angry about it, and they didn't want to be helpful. And he was emotional and angry, but he said, I want people to understand what it's like to be us. And, you know, Robert Parsons did as well. He said, you don't know what it's like to live without human contact. Mm. I don't know what you expect. Isolation. Yeah, yeah, because you can't touch people. When you're on death row, you're in a cell by yourself. You can never, you, you can't, you can't, mm. he said... You just think about what does it feel like to touch grass again? What does it feel like to hug a person? And then a lot of people will say, well, they they forfeited that right with their crimes, right? But some of their crimes were not any worse than the guys who are going to get out on parole, you know? I mean, that was really the difficult thing in talking to them is when you looked at their crimes, you're thinking, why is this guy on death row? Oh, he killed him in Ephraim, Utah versus um, Mm -hmm. Salt Lake City, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. For a period of time, you had Salt Lake City DA who didn't just didn't file criminal, or didn't didn't file a death penalty cases. So you didn't believe so, in it. Yeah, well, and I, I think it was expensive. It mm-hmm. was it seemed impractical. Yeah, um, you could talk to the board of pardons and and you could keep people in prison for life. So why not just do that? Yeah, you know. So so we've we've gone far afield here. We've talked all about uh, yes. crime and sports, and then crime and then sports, and and Amy hasn't taken a single bite I of know, her sandwich. I know. Talking too much. And uh, you uh, have to go to uh, what what event are you covering? Volleyball, covering volleyball tournaments today. Whoopee. So yes, you, and I, I know you love. I am. You love the the it's women's volleyball. Women's volleyball, and uh, I love women's sports, and I think I love it because I, I probably the same reason some of the dudes like covering football or whatever i see myself in these girls you know i see them with her. when they come in i get to watch them grow up some of them are coaches now that i covered really? um you know they come in and they're they don't have much confidence and you watch them blossom and you see what they overcome and they, you just for me it is the when you talk about the purity of something that's where it is mm. and you know there there are a lot of downsides now because there's club programs that are all about money, so there's definitely the same thing in the college ranks and and the pro ranks. You can always find those sort of, here's the way sports, and I I always say this, but football has become what boxing used to be, probably boxing in my dad's day, where it's the great, like, um, safety net of society. It takes people who otherwise would not have an out from the desperate situations Mm -hmm. they are in, and it gives them an opportunity to get an education, Mm -hmm. to be, to, to, to you know, sort of understand why and how they can lift themselves and their families up, and and does it always work? No, but it doesn't always work 
in the regular society either. I just heard, uh, and I'd forgotten about this guy. Uh, he was a football player for the Minnesota Vikings for, for many years, Alan Page. And Alan Page was uh, a fearsome football player, mm -hmm. a fearsome football player for the Minnesota Vikings. Mm -hmm. And then when he finished play, playing football, he was an, a lawyer, and then he was on the state Supreme Court yeah. uh, in, in Minnesota. And, well, uh, you know, it's a, just an interesting thing. That's, that's the kind of thing. And I don't know if he came from humble circumstances or not. Yeah. I mean, I, I, would, I would guess, that, you know, I think it's just become more and more. that That's the story I run into. Mm -hmm. But I see it in boxing. I see it in MMA. I see it in sports that will take anybody, basically. Yeah. Right? That sort of are combat sports or that give you a productive outlet for your anger at the world. Mm -hmm. Right? You're ticked off. Well, it didn't work you for Mike Tyson deal. too well. But it, but it did. You know, well, I mean, did he did he get to a he point blew where it. yeah, or you get to this? There's this. There's two paths though. There's this entitlement path yeah. too, where you start to believe all the hype about yourself, or you stay on this path where this is my opportunity. I'm lucky. I got out. Mm -hmm. You know, and and I'm going to do what I can to talk to and help kids that were in the same situation I was. So you see these things, but but that's what I see. And when people argue about you know whether or not women should have the same opportunities as men, that's what I see. We need the lifeline just as much as they do, maybe more so, right? Because women, they've done studies on it, and women who participate in athletics have higher confidence. They're less likely to get married at a young age. They're more likely to go on and get an education. They have higher grades. Um, I just think there's all the, all the positives that come from sports for men absolutely come for women as have well. Have you ever thought about uh, becoming a motivational speaker? <laughs> no. <laughs> No, am I motivating you? I'm not you? kidding. <laughs> I'm not kidding. No, you, but, but I mean, you just, you, you articulate some of these things exceptionally well. And I think that there are a lot of young women mm -hmm. and young men who could benefit greatly from just hearing that. I, I don't know why. There probably are high schools and colleges should be hiring you to come and speak. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not kidding. It's well, I'm like, available for hire. Just I give me a call. <laughs> I'm going to maybe be your agent about okay. this. <laughs> and Bill's going to go out and join a girls' volleyball team right after we get done. No, I'm yeah. uh, I'm past that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, There's although a, I feel yeah. encouraged sometimes. You know, I, I like I, I said. Oh, I can't I can't hike in the in the uh, Himalayas, and I did. Yeah. And uh, somehow made it. And then I just I just talked to this guy who runs Cranky's Bike Shop up on. There's an interesting guy you should interview. Okay. His name is Cristiano. I forget his last name now. He's from Brazil, really, but he owns Cranky's Bike Shop. He's done the race across America okay. on a bike before. Yeah. He's done that. And he's going to do this thing called the Baja Divide. Oh, I've heard of that. Oh, yeah. my God. And I'm looking yeah. at all of this stuff that he's going to do. And I yeah. said, and I sent him an email and I said, this looks just so fantastic. I, w I could never, I don't, I'm just beyond being able to do something like that yeah. now. I've got, I'm too old to do this. And he, he said, he sent me an email back and he said, don't sell yourself so short, you know? You, you you just take it easy and you could do it. Yeah. You just don't do it as fast as I do. And you hit on exactly what I love about it, especially at my age, which is I get pep talks from everybody I interview. I always say that my job is my religion. It's my church because all these people I go out and talk to are dealing with just unbelievably tough stuff or or they've just overcome so much or they just, they inspire me. And, I, you know, I had a... Anytime I'm having like a tough day about something and I have an interview and I think I don't want to do this or whatever, and then I go talk to these kids and, or, or college athletes or their families or these runners and triathletes or wh whoever it is, these Olympians who sleep in their cars and clean the decks so that they can jump for free, you yeah. know, um, you just, 
all of a sudden you go, you know the barriers I put up for myself? They're BS. Like, yeah. I, I, this is all me. And, and the only thing stopping me from doing whatever it is I think I want to do is my own crap. See? Motivational so, speaker. There you, know? you go. Yeah. All right, Amy, we got we to gotta yes, wrap it up. Gotta you, you need to eat, eat your sandwich and go cover gir- girls volleyball. Yes. Amy Donaldson, read, read her stuff in the Deseret News, uh, and the, the weekly column is on Monday, and then uh, are you on, you're in almost every day, right? Some sports yeah. story or another. Yeah, usually. And, um, and then uh, the podcast, Voices of Reason, uh, mm-hmm. with Jason Lee. Uh, that's it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That's Appreciate it. it. It's the Let's Go Eat show. Thank you, Dylan, for producing the show. Mm-hmm. It was nice to meet your father as well. Uh, Dan? Yes. Dan Donaldson. Uh-huh. Dan, yeah. Dan Donaldson. That's a... <laughs> That's a that's a solid name, isn't it? Dan Donaldson. <laughs> yes. And, and, he, uh, and he writes it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Bill Allred. Uh, that's the Let's Go Eat show. Remember, if you're pouring drinks, always make mine a double. Broadway Media Podcast Network. 